The Recovery Greenhouse is a podcast dedicated to the growth of ideas, concepts, and outlooks that support recovery and recovering communities. I'm Gerald Watt. I'm your host and a person in long-term recovery. I'm also the founder and executive director of Salt Valley Voices of Recovery. We're a recovery community organization serving Northwest Illinois. I'm a certified recovery support specialist, an entrepreneur, father. After a long list of careers, I found my calling in helping others to find recovery. I work with many, many people every day. And I'm on several addiction-related boards and talk all over the place and do all that kind of stuff. And uh, my core belief is that people have to make a, a conscious decision or an effort to change their lives for recovery. The saying, no pain, no gain, is exactly correct. A person cannot experience significant life changes without enduring, accepting, and often welcoming discomfort. You see, it isn't the change that hurts, it's our resistance to it. Um, First of all, I want to say thank you to Mama Samino's Restaurant for sponsoring this episode. You guys are great. Love your food. Um, Today, my my, my guest is is TJ Woodward. TJ is an author and uh, founder of Conscious Recovery. Uh, I like to consider a friend. He's been a a guest of ours here at RecoverCon. and uh, just an amazing, amazing person who I feel changes everybody's life he comes in contact. Hey, TJ. Hey, Gerald. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here with you, and I feel the same about you. Oh, thank you so much, man. Thank you so much. Before we, we, we started recording, we were just kind of talking about conscious recovery and where you'd like to see it go. Can you kind of give me the 10,000-foot view of what conscious recovery is? Yeah, conscious recovery really came out of my own experience in early recovery, uh, going through a very dark time, not only right before recovery, but about a year or so into recovery, I found myself suicidal and didn't really have a lot of tools to actually address the underlying root causes of my addiction. And um, I discovered a path toward returning to my true nature. And that has become my life's work. I love the way you framed, you know, I I went through about a lot of different careers and went back to school at 40 and thought I knew exactly what was mine to do. And it changed pretty abruptly when I started working in this field. So conscious recovery was born out of my own experience and now 15 years working in the field. And the foundational principle is underneath all addictive behavior is an essential self that's whole and perfect. Uh, And I felt so damaged and so broken. And I have discovered that about 100% of the people I've worked with feel the same. So I want to offer tools for people that realize that they're actually not broken and that underneath whatever has ever happened in their life and anything they've done, there is still this place of internal perfection. You know, it's, it's so interesting that the, uh, coincidental coincidental nature of recovery for me um i was in a aa meeting and we were talking about there's a part in their literature where they talk about can i do this for my life right can i take the 12 steps and, and spread them into my life and and it was asking these 11 questions you know i can't remember them offhand but it was like can i deal with in with sickness can i deal with other issues am i going to be able to continue to carry this message and in the end the answer was of course you can 
right? I don't, I don't even know why we would start from a place of, can I? Of course you can. You are, you are built, as you said, perfect. You can do those things. The question is, will you? Mm. Right? Am I, am I following along with where you're going? Is that? Yeah. I mean, I think that when we, when I had a profound experience of reconnecting with my true nature, my wholeness, in other words, when I, when I remembered that I came into the world as a whole and perfect being, and that I got programmed to believe all sorts of things uh, based on, you know, where I grew up, my race, you know, my gender, all the different things that lead to the programming and the programming for me had many, many different layers, some of them great, some of the programs I wanted to keep, but there were a lot of the programs that I wanted to question and dismantle. And the reason I'm saying all of that is I decided at a very early age that I was broken. I remember when I was seven, having a profound experience of feeling unsafe in the world and deciding that I wasn't good enough. And that decision became so foundational that by the time I was 13, when I discovered drugs and alcohol, I was ready to have something to bring relief from this existential crisis, if you will. And so a lot of times we think of recovery as working towards something. And with conscious recovery, we say it's actually about returning to something before the programming. So so, so does there was a, a program some time ago, rational recovery, that 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 went counter to the 12 step programs in, in a lot of ways. Is, is conscious recovery is not counter to it. It's, it's additional or, or complementary, right? Am well, I it's cool? interesting because in the name, people might assume that it's a support group and conscious recovery isn't a support group. So it's, it's okay. not against or an alternative to anything, certainly not the 12 steps. Conscious recovery is book. It's a workbook. There's some online courses. There are study groups that have popped out, popped up throughout the country. It's curriculum that is used in treatment programs. So it's an addition to anything that's working for someone, whether that's 12-step, whether that's a refuge recovery, celebrate recovery, all the different support groups. And it's so interesting because I think it's the name. People think, oh, here's another support group. But that's really not what conscious recovery is. Um, community is so vital in recovery. And for people who have found a community, conscious recovery is intended to be an additional resource to help you. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. I, I, I guess at our, at our RecoverCon conference last year, I've had a couple people tell me that they got the sense that we were, there were a lot of people that were anti 12 step mm -hmm. and they did not name conscious recovery as one of them, but there were some others. And, and I know who they're talking about. There, there are people who have a bone to pick with with anonymous yeah um but but for what i heard from conscious recovery and what i've seen in people that have take you know that picked up the book um at, at the conference they were able to to build that into their life it, it was it was bigger than just their addiction yeah yeah, really, it's not. It, as a matter of fact, it's funny you say that because when my editor was looking at the final, kind of the final product, she said, 
you know, you don't even mention addiction in the second half of the book at all. Like there's nothing about addiction. And, and I'm that's very intentional because, um, you know, as we know, we hear this in 12-step meetings, we hear this in other support groups, like drugs and alcohol aren't the problem. They were a solution to something. Right. And we take away that solution. Of course, they cause problems because as I say, we don't call it an addiction if it's still working. We call it fun, <laughs> right? It's not until it starts causing problems that we say, oh, maybe this isn't really what we what we want or in some cases we're almost forced into recovery but ultimately when we make the decision to be in recovery it's no longer about the substance um it really is about how do i live now right and that's where conscious recovery can come in and you know like like we already said whether someone's you know finding recovery through their church or through a support group through a 12 step program conscious recovery can help them because for me and my personal journey that time around 18 months to two years, I was kind of like, now what? Because I hadn't done any of the deeper healing. I was very grateful to be sober. I was out there helping other people. I was going to meetings and everything seemed to be on the outside going well, but like there was a lot of stuff underneath the surface that needed to be addressed. And for me, the deeper work for me was spiritual. And that's really the foundation of conscious recovery. It's my own experience of how to work through that in addition to the other support groups that someone is using. Have you ever heard the joke? People say, well, you know, cocaine brings out who you are. And then they say, oh, but what if you were an asshole? You know, um, <laughs> I kind of flip that backwards and say, well, recovery brings me back to this person who I haven't seen for many, 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 many years. And we all want to assume that that guy is this, you know, suave, debonair, loving, you know, wonderful person. But sometimes, in my case, I, I peel back the, the protective layers of my addiction, and I don't like who I find. Mm. Right? I, have, I, I, I realize, oh, there was a reason that I started putting the the armor on and and so you know it is it it did take a few years for me to find that where where do i fit in this and, and in fact for me i ended up staying sober for 14 years and then relapsing because i couldn't deal with who that was now i've been sober this time another 15 years and i've done it wholly different because i did not want to get back to that person at 14 years sober, who I wanted to throw into the river, you know? Yeah, I mean, you're speaking to something that's so foundational to my experience, and also um, a core concept of conscious recovery, and that is core false beliefs. We come into the world, I'm operating under the assumption that we come into the world as a whole being, or if that doesn't work for someone, you can at least say we come in as a blank canvas, right? And then we get programmed to believe all these things about ourselves what I call core false beliefs. Uh, a lot of people use the term core, core beliefs. I like to add the word false because it's really lies that we pick up about ourselves. And then we bec that becomes our identity in many cases. And we can't even remember the perfect self underneath that. So it's, an, it's interesting, you know, the analogy of the peeling the onions. Um, when, we, when we peel those first few layers off, we might find parts of ourselves that we've buried that we don't want to address, right? The behavior that stems from the core false belief. So let me break it down in a more succinct way. I believed I was broken 
and I acted broken in the world. I took on an identity of someone who was broken. We could call that shame. Shame led me to behave in ways that I was not proud of at all. And then I would feel more shame about the behavior. And then it was a downward spiral of, see, I am, I am a broken person. There is something fundamentally wrong with me. And drugs and alcohol were an escape from that. And I agree wholeheartedly with you that a lot of people get to a point in recovery where they have to look at the part that maybe they don't want to address, the part of us that did cause harm in the world. I think one framework that conscious recovery has a very, I have a very particular point of view on, and that is, that is what we've done, but not who we are. And of course, it's important to clean that up. Of course, it's important to make amends. But if that, if I believe that's who I am, the deeper work of healing is much more difficult. If I look at whether it's addiction or stealing or cheating, all the different things we talk about, um, if I look at those as a strategy to manage the core false belief, I can have more compassion. So I don't I don't use the term coping mechanism in uh, conscious recovery, and I don't use the term character defect. I call them brilliant strategies. They were brilliant because they served us in some way, right? So uh, we often say to someone, um, you know, you shouldn't be angry. We're going to send you to anger management. And I say, rather than saying manage your anger, we want to ask, what is the anger managing? Right. That's a very different way of working with it, right? And so every time I caused harm in the world, which were plenty, it was because I believed I was broken. And so we want to get down to and heal that part of ourselves. But the foundation is I'm still a whole and perfect person. And that's a great starting place. You know, it, 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 I remember the first time I heard you speak and you you brought up the brilliant strategy and it just like blew my mind. Just, you know, you're absolutely right. And, and, and that I have a, a, belief or a, a theory based on the six and seven steps of 12 steps, you know, asking God to remove my shortcomings. And, and a lot of your old time sponsors will tell you in a grizzled voice, you know, oh, your shortcomings aren't your business, right? You know, I don't know what my shortcomings are because my shortcoming to me is a a a situational and, and so you know i may be a very violent person and in a at a bar mitzvah you don't want me to be bar violent you know and if i do that that's inappropriate and everybody says gerald's bad but if you and i are trying to walk into a gas station one night and some guy jumps out with a pistol and tries to, you know, tries to hurt us, then you want me to be violent. It's appropriate in that space. And so God put that in me because God or, or my creator knew what I would need to, 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 to navigate the world. And, and, and so I don't want to put a good or bad on the things that I do. I just want to say that in the life that I was leading, in the situations I encountered, these are the ways that I dealt with it. They were my strategies. So yeah, 
And usually these strategies develop at a really young age. For example, someone who experiences sexual trauma will sometimes numb out or leave their body, right? So anytime something in their adult life is painful, they find themselves checking out. At the most extreme, they lose time, right? They're like, I don't remember the last two hours because something intense happened. Bessel van der Kolk says, trauma doesn't show up as a memory, it shows up as a reaction. So we developed these strategies at a really young age, and they're quite brilliant at the time. For me, it was a wall that I built around my heart. And so anytime something became difficult as an adult, I would find myself feeling numb or checking out or like not even remembering, a, you know, a whole conversation. Uh, and I, at one point, would identify that as a character defect. Oh, there's something wrong with that. But I discovered that in the viewing it as wrong, it was actually keeping it alive. What I've used instead is what gets created when I, and then I fill in the blank, what gets created when I numb out. There was a benefit very early in life, so it becomes an automatic response when things get difficult. I ask myself, in what ways has it served me? I always want to start with looking at how it was brilliant. Then I want to go to how is it no longer serving me, and what do I truly desire? And at the root of it, I think most of us want love and connection on some level. Um, maybe anger has kept us feeling safe, and we use that as a as you know whether it's anger or violence, fill in the blank with whatever that strategy is. It helped us early in life to feel safe, so it becomes an automatic response, and we're unconscious, and it's in the unconscious, and that is running the show. We want to bring it into conscious awareness, not how do I get rid of it? And that's where we, you know, there's a whole nuanced conversation around step six and seven, but if you read the 12 and 12, I love the term it uses the um, a, an index of maladjustments, right? So. Yeah. You know, it's not in you know, the the late great Wayne Dyer said character defects are only assets with the volume turned up too high. I right. love that, right? right? It's about balancing these traits, not about getting rid of them. And so, so if I subscribe to what my grandmother told me about the way these things were affecting me, then it it what I'm left with is fifty years of shame, right? I, I'm, I'm left with, I'm less than, I'm left with, uh, I would have been great had it not been for, and and that's what I drink over, you know, that's what, I don't, I don't drink over having a character defect, I don't drink over being, you know, unable to cope with things or, or, or I, I drink over the fact that I sit there in my mind and I ask myself, am I less than because of this? Yeah, and addiction in its simplest form is trying to change the experience of now, right? Like this feels too painful, let me use a substance or have sex or go shopping or whatever the addictive pattern right. is. So recovery becomes how do I learn how to be present with it? And if we're looking at something as wrong or defective and we think we have to get rid of it, that in itself can be an addictive thought. Oh, this is bad. Let me get rid of it. We will hear people say positive and negative emotions. And I don't think there's any such thing as a positive or a negative emotion, because as soon as I say anger is a negative emotion that I must get rid of, I'm back in the addiction. I need, And sometimes I work a step to get rid of this, or I go talk to someone to get rid of this. Instead, we look at a pre-programmed human, a two-year-old or a three-year-old, they feel in the moment, 
they express that feeling, and then they come back to their natural state. We then start to teach them that they shouldn't cry or they shouldn't be too happy or they shouldn't be angry. And we start to teach people to suppress. And that's usually unconscious. Um, in my household, it was go to your room so you can start stop crying. Um, it was, if you don't stop crying, I'll give you something to cry about. So I learned at a very early age to suppress all of that. And it's no wonder that that was buried very deeply in my unconscious, but it was running the show. And so recovery is about learning how to be present with it, not necessarily to identify why am I angry or why am I sad, but just allow myself to feel it, even if it's for 60 seconds, because a lot of us, um, those of us who have practiced addiction for many years, we haven't even given ourselves two minutes to feel. We have a reactive impulse to change the experience of now. So that's the no pain, no gain that I talked about in my opener. Right. You know, if I if I can figure out a way to create my life where I don't feel any of the negativity, any of the pain, my old my old person thought, yeah, that's the way to do it. And my new person sees that I will never grow. You know? Yeah. I mean that that's really it, right? We and you know it it it's interesting because as you're speaking, I'm thinking sometimes too, and we hear this a lot with people in early recovery, that some people are really comfortable in the pain, but they're not comfortable with happiness, right? So regardless of what the emotion is or the experience is, it's about learning how to be present with it because you know we know that if we don't get outside of our comfort zone, nothing's going to change. If I continue to have the same ideas and the same behaviors, I will get the same results. That's very simple. But the million-dollar question is, well, okay, that's great, but how do I actually change it? And I think what we're talking about is, for me, it's kind of the first step is let me pause and be present with what, what I'm experiencing and see if I can not attach a story to it or try to get rid of it. Um, you know, I remember, I hear a lot of people saying, you know, I'm comfortable being sad, but I don't know how to be happy, right? So regardless of what the experience is, I think what we're saying is learning how to be present with it is really important. Awesome. We're going to take a quick break um, and uh, pay some bills and uh, be right back. Hey everybody, this episode of The Recovery Greenhouse is sponsored by Mama Samino's, an Italian-American restaurant located at 104 South Peoria Avenue in Dixon, Illinois. Believe me, Mama Samino's has your lunch and dinner covered. Enjoy Italian favorites like pizza, spaghetti, ravioli, and more. Mama Samino's also includes gluten-free pizza, pasta, and chicken strips. They have a lunch buffet available Monday through Friday from 11 a.m. to 1.30 p.m. for just $6.99. $6.99. To make it as easy as possible for you to get your favorite meal, you can have them deliver your order, join them for dining, or you can pick it up. You need space for a private event? Look no further. Call them today to reserve their event ballroom. Mama Samino's opens at 11 a.m. Monday through Sunday. Come visit Mama Samino's. No one cooks like Mama. 104 South Peoria Avenue in Dixon, Illinois. We're back with my guest, TJ Woodward, founder of uh, Conscious Recovery and, and friend of the podcast and friend of the organization. Uh, man, I'm, I'm so happy to, to have you on, on, on the show, man. This, I, I think uh, I'm probably going to drop dead one day and somebody's going to find my my works. And I, the, one of the things I'll be most proud of is this podcast and 
and being able to talk to people like you. So thank you for, for doing this with me. Oh, and thank you for doing it. I know what it what it involved what's involved in having a podcast. And I think we're living in these remarkable times where we get to have these conversations and any of us can have a podcast and have conversations that matter to us. So thank you for your yes. Yeah. Imagine like if in a million years somebody finds this and they're like, these two were gods. And then, <laughs> and then the, the world is like built off of this conversation. <laughs> well, you know, it's it's funny you say that because I think about, you know, writing books and I and and there are people who have a tendency sometimes. I mean, if you look at 12-step at programs, they're, they idolize the founders and the founders were like, literally said, we know only a little. They literally right. say, we know only a little and more will be revealed, but people like right. cling to it. And I, I I was part of a spiritual organization and there are people who are like, if the founder didn't say it, we shouldn't be teaching it. And yet the founder was like, the expansion of consciousness is what this is all about and new information, right? So it's very, very funny to me to imagine a hundred years from now, someone saying, well, TJ Woodward said, and I'm like, well, I, you know, I, I, I read something and say, gosh, I'd never say it that way. Oh, wait, that was me. All right. So TJ, I saw you in, what was that Baltimore where we bumped into each other? You were wearing the blue blazer. You came to Dixon. We're going to talk about in a moment. You were wearing the blue blazer. You're now wearing the blue blazer. So in a hundred years, everyone will be wearing nothing but blue. You cannot wear a green blazer. TJ did not wear the the green blazer. You know what's funny about that is I ran into someone and they said, "Oh, you're that guy that always wears the red blazer." I'm like, "Really? I do have one. I have a red one, and I have been wearing it a lot." So I'm I'm aware that I often wore a black shirt with a blue blazer, and I've tried to not do it as often. But here I am today doing it. So I I don't know what to say about that. So so <laughs> you know that like in the future everybody's gonna wear the silver suit with the silver shoes, and, and I want to be like the first guy to just wear that to work one day and be like, "Hey, this is." Cool doing now so anyway that's that's <laughs> idiocy i'm sorry so, so tell me you know I, I i hate war stories but you know give me 30 seconds how do you get to be in recovery and what's your thing well you know as i talked about in the first part of the show i you know at age seven i decided i was not lovable and that i was stupid and that i wasn't good enough and i walked around really carrying that, not only that idea about myself, but really the frequency. And I, I kept finding myself in relationships that were unfulfilling. And when I was 13, I discovered weed and alcohol and it saved my life. And um, the last year of my using um, was really, I guess, you know, we hear this a lot, but it was a low level search for connection. Mm -hmm. um, I I felt so desperately disconnected from myself in the world and so desperately wanted to not have that be true. And um, so I was, you know, practicing over shopping. I was like trying to look good. I was doing lots and lots of ecstasy. It was back in the day at the very beginning of it in 1985. And, um, you know, one of the one of the paradigms of recovery I would like to hear us change is this idea that we have to hit bottom before we get into recovery, because most of the time people talk about it as an external. Maybe you have to lose everything. Um, and yet we know people who have lost everything and still continue to lose That's to use and other people who seem to like not have to lose everything. And for me, and the reason I'm sharing all of this is for me, what happened is I reached a place of spiritual bankruptcy. 
And I felt so empty and so um, disconnected from myself. So the drugs and alcohol that once were brilliant, that brought me relief from this belief in my brokenness, started actually making it worse. And a friend of mine had gotten sober and invited me to hang out with him at this place he got sober. And I went and it was like, oh my gosh, this is what I've been looking for. Um, so my last day drinking was completely uneventful. It was two Coronas. It was nothing, <laughs> right? I had overdosed three months earlier and you would think that maybe that's the day I would want to get sober, but that wasn't at all what happened. So um, that was the beginning for me. And that was in June of 1986. You know, I, I um, thank you for sharing that. I, 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 two things you said, one about the bottom. I agree with you hundred percent. One guy is living behind a trash can eating rats and that's his bottom. And another guy like runs his Jaguar along the bushes coming into the house. And he's like, I'm done. No more of this. And I have to respect that. That means what it means to that person, not to me, but to that person. And if that is as far down as they're willing to go, then that is it. Yeah. yeah, and I, I think we tend, like 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 I said, we tend to think of it as an external, right? But really, it's an internal place. And to name also that if, if people are walking around feeling unworthy of recovery or unworthy of changing their life, how can we be part of helping them, right? Shame is such a, you know, it's one of the things I identify as the roots of addiction, and like, you know, I had the friend who got sober, but what if I hadn't, right? I think about that sometimes. I would have just maybe just kept going. I don't know. I don't know what it would have taken for me to say, I really need to turn my life around and then try to figure out how to do that. There was just this person and, you know, I look back and he was only 10 days sober, but for him to say, I haven't used in 10 days, that was that a big something. deal for me at the time. Right, right. You said something that caught me and and it was frequency. You said, I'm walking around with this frequency. And, and can you, can you explain? Cause I think that lines up with something I see. Yeah. I mean, it's a life is life is energy really. Um, and that's science. And that's, you know, like I, I'm here on the West coast. So most people just jive right with that. But, you know, I grew up in a small town in Indiana, not on the Illinois border. So like, you know, I don't know if everyone in small town America is like life is energy, but so let's break down what I mean. Right? So, <laughs> Because, you know, like I do trainings on the East Coast and the South, on the West Coast, and like there's a different level of acceptance to certain things. So um, let me break down what I mean, because it's actually very simple. Um, when I have a core decision about myself, let's use the example that I'm not lovable, that becomes actually an energy field. And, and you know, we're, we're that's proven now. We all have an in, individual energy field. And, you know, it's really popular in our culture now to talk about the law of attraction. So like I attract this, but actually I'm choosing it and I'm choosing it unconsciously. So I can walk into a room full of 25 people and my vibration will match the person to confirm the core false belief, no matter how much work I'm doing on the conscious level. That's why for me, the, the, the deeper healing of addiction is always about getting down to the unconscious, not may just I borrow, May I borrow frequency? Because what I have often told people is, isn't it amazing how I could walk into, you know, what's the stadium there, the Staples Center? Sure. Yeah. Staples Center. I could walk into the Staples Center in a Lakers game and I could tell you the guy that's got Coke. 
<laughs> you know, <laughs> I could just, I can look across 10, 15,000 people and be like, that guy, that's my guy, because he is giving off that frequency that matches my frequency. And it, it, it is proven time and time and time again, like similar, you know, people are always like, oh, well, you know, I'll move to another town. And you just, you, you take you and your frequency there and you just stand in the middle of town and you vibrate. And, and somehow the people that have the same strategies, as you said, just attract right to you. And I, I love that because I get it, man, frequency. Yeah. I mean, you know, we, and we hear different terms to describe it, you know, say there's a vibe, I caught a vibe, right? There's all these different ways we communicate it. But I think on some level, we're all aware of that, that draw that we have towards certain things. So, you know, we spend a lot of time in our culture talking about how to remove toxic relationships or get rid of toxic work environments. But really what's required here is our own deep healing. Cause then we start to choose differently. We start to vibrate at a different frequency and sometimes it feels like magic, but it's actually very, very simple and straightforward. Animals are actually very in touch with energy. Um, you know, animals before a tsunami instinctively run to higher ground and mm -hmm. we don't necessarily know why. And then we call ourselves more intelligent, but we often run out into the water and die, right? So obviously we have developed brains and we're more intelligent than some animals. But in some ways, we've forgotten the basics, right? The basics are being in touch and trusting, whether we call it intuition, whether we call that a hunch, whether we call that a vibe. We all know on some level that, that that's really happening. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, it, it's so funny when you, you talk about the things that humans do that animals don't. And, you know, you, you just like, I always wonder, like, how come you don't just see frozen squirrels all over the place, you know? You know, people stay outside and freeze. You know, yeah. never see a frozen squirrel. Squirrels. <laughs> anyway, um, so you said small <laughs> short attention span theater, dude. No, I love it. I love it. And, and it's very true. You know, if you if you look at like people that are caught in floods or in, right. you know, they're like, I'm not leaving my home, even though right. I'm told I need to leave my home, right? And there's an attachment to that. And you know, again, it's not there's anything right or wrong about that. People like live in hurricane zones and they're like, I'm not evacuating this time. I've evacuated the last 10. And yeah, sometimes they die. But there's something about animals that it's instinctual. And obviously animals die in hurricanes and fires as well. But what I'm pointing to is like to look if, if I get quiet enough to like listen, inner wisdom will guide me in ways that my mind doesn't necessarily um, have the ability to do. Well, I think that, I think that it's, it's funny. We have a list, you know, we, we help people get to treatment. We drive people that have gone to emergency room or gone to the police department and said, I need help. And we come in and we try to get those people to a treatment center and we'll drive them hours away if they'll allow it to happen. And we have a list of character features of those people that we kind of train on. And we say, you know, they have, be aware of this, be aware of that. And the last one is a lot of these people have illogical attachments, mm. right? And we have to be aware of that because to me, it's silly, but to him, it's real, yeah. right? And, and, you know, we have people that are going to die. They are that close. 
and you say, I can get you into a treatment center tomorrow. And he says, I can't go because I have to pay a, a light bill. Yeah. And, and you look at him like, what? You know, I can't go because there's nobody to take care of my dog. I had a guy that was homeless living in a truck in the dead of winter in uh, Illinois. But he would not take a room at our sober house because we wouldn't let his dog in. Right. And I'm like, that's not. But that attachment was real to him. I don't know what it represented. I don't know what strategy it was. I don't know where it came from. I just know that if he had he been an animal, had I asked the dog, <laughs> the dog had been like, yeah, he'll be all right. I'm going <laughs> inside. But people, we, 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 maybe we intellectualize. Yeah. And, and, you know, uh, it's interesting you're using the word attachment because in a lot of ways, addiction is an, it's what, what we would call an attachment disorder, right? So like I, I found something or I attached to something that really works. And that, again, we're going back to the brilliant strategy for me, you know, it was weed and then it was alcohol and then it was MDMA and all of those things I became attached to because they were bringing relief, even though they were still causing problems, right? And I think it's easy for us to lose sight of um, that it's no longer serving me. But unfortunately, we end up a lot of times trying to negotiate with someone from their intellect. Um, you know, I, I had the privilege of working in full-time in treatment for maybe a decade. And, you know, when people were leaving treatment, I would hear counselors sitting down with them, trying to convince them to stay. Um, and, you know, there's nothing more futile than arguing with the part of them who wants to leave. I always wanted to be curious about the part of them that's in the conversation, right? Mm -hmm. Because I, I would, I was the person I would, that would often be called in to talk with someone who was trying to leave treatment or wanting to leave treatment. And I would start with, I want to let you know that I'm not here to try to talk you into staying. I just want to have a conversation with you. Um, and I also know that what someone's upset about isn't really what they're upset about. If there's a big emotional reaction, there's something deeper and let's be curious about it. So even if it's 5% of them who wants to be there, let's have a conversation with that part of them, not the part who wants to leave. Um, and somehow what you said, you know, triggered that, that in, in, in my mind, but I think it's an important thing to look at, right? Cause we could, we could talk to this guy about, you know, the insanity of putting his dog before him, but it's a very real experience for him, right? Sure. And to be yeah. able to find out what's really going on is important. So we don't have much time. So I, I just wanted, you know, like you said, you're from small town America. So, you know, what was your experience when you came to Dixon? <laughs> did it remind well, you of home? It did. It absolutely did. You know, I lived my first seven years in Clinton, Indiana. It was a town, I think, of 2,000 people, pretty close to the Illinois border. Um, okay. I left there when I was seven. So in some ways, I don't have a lot of conscious memories of being in Clinton. I have some, of course. But definitely being in Dixon brought that back for me. There was a, an energy. I'm like, talk about energy. It's like, ooh, there's something here and it's layered. It feels really comforting and it feels really small and it feels really isolating and it feels really, um, at the same time, there's a part of me that was like, oh, this feels really good, right? So it, like anything, there are, always, there are many layers to it. Well, Homer Ronald Reagan. Home of Ronald Reagan. Yes, I didn't know that until I drove by his birthplace. Yeah, and and you know, I think I, I think it's interesting because um, you know often 
we are we talk about our country being polarized um and i actually don't think our country is polarized i think we've been conditioned to have polarized thinking you know us and them and you're my people and i'm you're you're not my people and sometimes that's like cities and small towns you know kind of almost put you know pitted against each other but in my experience and maybe this is my old midwest values but when i sit down and actually talk with someone i find more commonality than differences 100% 100% and 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 i think that's a big part of what our organization is trying to do is to lift that stigma mm-hmm. um, we have a young man that is working for us and he's got the he's got the 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 history you know and and you can see it on his arms his tattoos and the way he you know he he had activated strategies that worked in the world that he was living in in that time and now he's moved and he's he's meeting with bank presidents and foundation uh executives etc and he said to me when he first came on he's like do you think they'll take me seriously and i said absolutely they'll take you seriously if you do yeah yeah regardless of all that if you carry yourself with dignity if you don't allow shame to make you know you pay a lot of money and a lot of heartache for every one of those tattoos <laughs> you know and 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 i know for me I'm very the one of the things I'm most proud of in my life is is that I'm a recovering a, alcoholic and addict. Yeah. Um, I mean what what once caused the greatest amount of pain in our lives can become our purpose. And I I remember I was facilitating a workshop some year ago, some years ago and somehow organically we wrote about the most painful experiences of our lives and then the most powerfully positive transformational experiences of our lives. And then I asked the question, might these two, these two different experiences inform what our purpose is? And for me, it was, you know, it was an eye-opening moment for me because when I combined those two, I realized that my my calling now is to help people not only break the cycle of their addiction, but really reconnect with who they really are and live a life deeply on purpose. So it was like, ah, yes, we can use every, you know, we say shift happens um, i say <laughs> fertilizer fertilizer happens right it's just a little bit of a change of perspective and we can call it fertilizer <laughs> is i mean isn't that isn't that the the bigger picture though when, when you what you what you said is is our job to help people recover from drug and alcohol addiction or is our job to to help people find who they were before they needed the drugs and alcohol well you know? i, I I know which one is more effective in my experience. That's for sure. Right, right. You know, um, it, it, I, I've met many people who, like my wife is a normie. She's, you know, she likes her glass of wine. She has the summer shandy she bought a year ago and didn't like. It's still in the fridge. And, you know, people are like, aren't, aren't you freaked out by the liquor in the house? And I'm like, no, you know, it. It's not for me. She has a lot of things in the house that aren't for me. The kids have things in the house for me. I don't find myself trying to put on kids' shoes, you know? I don't I don't find myself wearing her clothes or or so why do you know everything in my house doesn't have to be consumed by me. So it's right. not about the fact that I have access to it, it's the fact of whether I want it or not. 
And when somebody says to me, I can't have liquor in the house, they're telling me I still want liquor. Yeah, there's still something there. I remember during early COVID, people were trying to get Trader Joe's to stop having the the waiting lines because you know they were so long because everyone had to be six feet apart. They were waiting in the in the alcohol aisles. And what about people in recovery? And I'm like, well, I mean, if I understand that, and if I'm someone who can't stand in the aisle, of course, if if I'm in a place where I can't, yes, change where I stand, right? But at some point. This really is about doing the deeper inner work. So it's, I'm not affected by the aisle one way or the other. Exactly. Nobody has ever relapsed because vodka was on sale. <laughs> right. They may have thought that, but yes. You know, they were walking through the store, like doing great. And, you know, just came from a meeting like what? 12 cents off a gallon. <laughs> so <laughs> anyway, we're having you back in uh, October. We're very excited. You'll be visiting us in DeKalb at Northern Illinois University. Great, great, great lineup. I don't know if you've seen the website, but we have your beautiful picture. I think you're, I think you're in the blue blazer. <laughs> we'll see. Yes. I, 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 you know, you know what, Gerald, now I don't think I wore the blue blazer when I spoke last year. I don't know if that's true, but, but you're remember. saying I did. So this year, I'm going to make video it was so terrible. I couldn't tell. <laughs> well, I'm going to mix it up. I'm going to, I'm going to intentionally not, I'm looking at, I'm looking at my jackets right now. I can see from my desk. So I will absolutely commit to you right now. I'm going to wear something other than blue and see what happens. All right. So, you know, um, when I saw you in Baltimore, there was a young lady that was with you. Uh, is she still working with Amy, you? Or? Yeah, Amy. Oh, she was delightful. I, I so love her. Please. Please send her my best. She she was so much fun. Just a, a, a smile from you know that that just lights up a room. So please let her know I asked after her. Um, all right. So thanks for being here. Don't get off. I'm gonna I'm gonna close up. Um, so for everybody listening, this has been my interview with T.J. Woodward, and uh, as always, uh, just rambling conversation going in no direction but every direction. Um, if you're out there and you need help, there's there's help available. Uh, there's people like myself, people like TJ that love the opportunity to try and, and, and give back and to reach out. So, you know, reach out to your local police department, reach out to your local hospital, uh, fire department, AA meeting, NA meeting, recovery community organization, church. Um, just just reach out to somebody and and let them know, be honest and say, I'm struggling and I need help. And um, if you can't reach them, then reach me. Uh, we're at svvor.org or 779-707-0151. In the meantime, I want to thank uh, Mama Samino's Restaurant, 104 South Peoria and Dixon. Great pizza. Get some. Um, I want to thank Slang Music Group for the music that, that accompanies this show. Uh, NRG Media uh for being our radio partner. This show airs every uh, Sunday morning on uh, WIXN. Um, I want to thank Mississippi Centers. I want to thank uh, Dixon Police, City of Dixon, all the people that help us to, to do the work we're doing. Uh, the show is produced by me, so I'm doing my best. Don't judge me. And uh, remember, guys, if, if, you, uh, if you need help, there's somebody out there. Thanks for being there, TJ. Thank you so much, Gerald.